Feeling good? A good Sunday? Yes, I feel good. Uh, we're going to be in, well, we're going to be in a lot of places. So what we're going to do today is um, we're in the middle of a series on, uh, an Advent series, four weeks, answering the question, why did God become human? And I want to just kind of, uh, again, put your attention on our art piece that is every week being added to with different silhouettes of Jesus. Uh, our art team is really talented and creative, and um, I'm excited to see it continue. So there's some explanation of what's going on there on that card. If you're interested after service, you can come up and look at that. But last week we talked about the idea that, that Jesus became, or the, that God became human because in the Old Testament he said he would, right? That there's this Old Testament record of prophecy, God, God telling things before they happened that said that the, the Savior, the King was going to be human, but he was also going to be God. And we see that in Jesus. But today, we're going to answer the question a little bit differently. We're going to answer the question, why did God become human? Uh, Because he came to conquer death. And we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. So you can open your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to be on page 1061. And we're not going to be kind of dissecting this whole passage this morning. This is going to be more of a kind of a theological message instead of a um, verse-by-verse message, but we're going to kind of hover around this passage in Hebrews and and jump around different things as we go. As always, uh, we'll do a little Q&R afterwards. If you want to jump on slido.com and and type in RevCDA, you can post questions and we'll interact with those at the end. And as you're getting your Bibles turned there, let's, let's pray. Lord God, we are um, we're coming into this place in, in just a lot of different headspaces. For some of us, we are exhausted after a long week. Some of us are just thrilled about the snow outside and the charm of the Christmas season. Um, others are struggling with relationships or health problems. They're in physical pain or emotional anguish. I got every every person in this room has a different story this morning, and um, God, I just I pray that we would uh, submit those stories to you, that we would lay them at your feet, that we wouldn't discount them or set them aside, but that we would recognize that they are not ultimately our burdens, they are your burden, and that you've called us to cast our burdens on you, that you'd give us refreshment in these next minutes, to think clearly, to be expectant in this Advent season, for the coming of Christ, to be excited about who Jesus is. God, I pray for my words as I, as I try to distill just these, these big ideas that, that no one honestly can totally comprehend. Uh, help me to communicate well this morning uh, and teach us and grow us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So in asking the question, why did God become human? Last week, I talked about a church father named Athanasius. Athanasius wrote a book in the early third century called On the Incarnation. It's about, I don't know, 60 pages long. It's not, it's not big, but it's his, his treatise on why 
God became a human being. And he lists a bunch of different reasons, and we're kind of riffing on those reasons through this series. And, and the reason I wanted to do that is because in our tradition, most of us as um, kind of evangelical adjacent Christians, I know that's not a label that everybody likes anymore, that's fine, uh, but we don't tend to think about our community of faith outside of the room that we worship in, or maybe even like the denomination we're a part of. But the reality is our faith goes back 2,000 years. And I think there's a real um, value in reminding us that these men and women that were on the ground in the early centuries of the church kind of working out what it meant to follow Jesus, there are brothers and sisters. There are people, uh, and, and there are heritage. And so we talked, we're not going to rehash the story of Athanasius. You can, you can re- listen to the podcast if you're interested in that, if you've missed it. But um, these individuals, these, these Christians, these scholars are instrumental in creating an understanding of who we are today. And, and they, we wouldn't be where we're at without them. And so uh, I'm going to quote a little bit from Athanasius's work today, but uh, as we interact with Hebrews and some other texts, but I think it's really helpful for us to remember, like, yeah, this has been going on, this gathering of God's people, this submitting to the scriptures, this thinking deeply about who God is for centuries uh, to his glory and for the good, ultimately, of the world. In the early part of the 20th century, there were two professors in England at Oxford. One was named C.S. Lewis, and the other one was named J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien was a Christian. C.S. Lewis was not. They were friends, and they hung out a lot, and Tolkien talked about Jesus to his friend, Clive. And after a while, Lewis became convinced that God exists. But he wasn't convinced that the God of the Bible, the Christian God, was the true God because he was an expert in uh, ancient mythology. And so he studied all of these really crazy stories about the exploits of gods and heroes. And he read the Bible and he said, you know what? The Bible is full of those kind of things. It must also be a myth. And his friend, Mr. Tolkien, challenged him on that. And he said, you know what? What if the Bible, the story of Jesus, the fantastic tale that we read there is actually the one myth that is true? And Lewis thought about that, and eventually he became a Christian himself. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he talks about one of the ways that God speaks to people. And he says one of, the, one of the ways that God speaks to people is that he has embedded into the human conscience this longing for stories about heroes and villains and saviors. And they, they come out in our literature, in, in an, on our folk religion, and, and they, they are meant to create a thirst in us for this ultimate reality, this ultimate real story that's found in Jesus. And I think this is true for old mythology and pagan religion, but I also think it's true today uh, in what we call modern fiction. And so 
when we look at the films we watch, the, the big blockbuster movies that capture our imaginations, we see these ideas. And, and there's dozens of them, but I want to focus on, on one today, and that's, that's a film from my childhood called Independence Day. It was a good movie. Yeah. In Independence Day, uh, there is an invasion of an alien army on the earth, and the, earth had the, the people of the earth have to get together in order to uh, fight against these aliens. But the problem is these aliens have this impenetrable shield around all their ships, and none of the human weapons can pierce it. And the solution for this is our, our heroes, Will Smith and uh, Jeff Goldblum, who all, always only really play Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum, right? Like, they don't have character names. Um, they find this little alien fighter plane that they get into, and they learn how to fly, and they fly it up out into outer space to the mothership, the control ship. And they trick the control ship, because they're in the little spacecraft, to let them dock, and they plug a computer into, a MacBook, into the, into the alien system, and download a virus, right? And the virus infects the entire alien fleet and shuts down the shield. And over and over and over and over in cinema, we see this idea that the hero cannot defeat the villain out in the open. He or she has to get behind enemy lines and go up into the dark heart of the evil in order to destroy it. We see Iron Man going through the wormhole with the nuclear weapon to blow up the Chitari. And we see... um, What else do we see? We see uh, Anakin Skywalker flying into the droid control ship to blow it up. And I could go on and on and on about popular science fiction and fantasy movies where we can't win the battle on the field. We have to go inside the evil and beat it from there. Hold that thought. Jesus came to be a human to conquer death. What is death? death? Death is a power. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. We tend to think of death as like a state. You're either alive or you're dead. But that's not how the Bible talks about death. Death is a power that is wielded by the devil. In fact, death often, especially in the Old Testament and sometimes in the New, is personified. Jeremiah 9.20 says, Now hear the word of the Lord, you women. Pay attention to the words from his mouth. Teach your daughters a lament and one another a dirge. For death has climbed through our windows. It has entered our fortresses, cutting off children from the streets, young men from the squares. Death in that passage is capitalized because death is personified. Psalm 49.14 says, Like sheep, they are headed for Sheol. Death will shepherd them. The Hebrew word for death is mot, which is the same word as one of the Canaanite gods of the area. The Canaanites believed in the god of death, and the Hebrews used that word to describe death in their own language. In the Israelite mind, death is a personified force of evil. In the New Testament, in Revelation 6, 
We read, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following after him. They were given authority over fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. The word for death in Greek is thanatos, where Thanos gets his name in the Marvel universe because he wanted to kill half of the living beings. It's all connected. <laughs> See, this power of death was unleashed on the world in Genesis 3, right? Death becomes the greatest enemy of humanity. And this is exactly what God said would happen. The choice to abandon union with God, to trust him for our sustenance, for our survival, was a choice to embrace union with death through sin. Because sin is the weapon of death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. 1 Corinthians 15.56 says, the sting of death is sin. Both of those verses are saying the same thing. The sin comes at you first, but it brings death with it, and it enslaves you to its power. This is the thing about like zombie movies. Like the big problem with zombie movies is not the bite you get, but it's the fact that the bite turns you into a zombie. The sting of death is sin. And this brings up an issue when maybe you're, maybe you're not a Christian this morning. Maybe you have questions about the whole like God dying on the cross for sin and that seems weird and unjust and it's not a very modern idea. And, 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 and that's fine. I love the fact that we are able to ask questions. Why can't, we just, why can't we just say we're sorry? Like you do something bad to someone, you ask forgiveness and they, they forgive you and, and everything's done. Why doesn't that work that way? With God. Why can't God just forgive us? Why all this messy cross business that Christians are so into? Athanasius says in his book on the Incarnation, he says, repentance does not recall human beings from what is natural, but merely halts sin. What he says is, is, yeah, God can forgive you. God is a forgiving God, but the fact is we've all been infected by death. And repentance doesn't change that. Micah 7.18 says, who is, like, who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. God's character is such that he is continually forgiving people of sin who ask for forgiveness, who turn from their sins. But that doesn't fix the death problem. Jesus comes to destroy the forces of death. The reason you exist, all your hopes and dreams, the angst and longing that you feel deep down in your soul, all of that has been designed by God to be met by his own presence and the life that you draw from it. C.S. Lewis has this analogy. He says, God made us. Invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. 
Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. The power of death has no place in the presence of God. It cannot abide there. That's why Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. It's the whole point of the sacrificial law in the Old Testament. God desires to be with his people, but God's absolute goodness is dangerous for people infected with sin and death. How many of you have decided to read the Bible in a year and you get through Genesis, great, and then you get through Leviticus, okay, and then you get to, uh, you get to Exodus, okay, and then you get to Leviticus, right? And Leviticus is weird. It's all these weird rules. What does it mean? There's, a, there's like a bunch of stuff about skin diseases. There's a whole chapter about genital discharge, touching dead bodies. It's weird stuff. All of this weird stuff is connected to how we are called to approach God, who is good and pure and holy as a sinful human being infected with death. I've heard that the presence of God is like a nuclear power plant. You must be wearing a hazmat suit to approach him. Last, uh, last year, I got the idea that I wanted to keep really detailed track of our electricity usage at our house. So I bought one of those kits that you hook up to your uh, breaker panel that, that tells you what each of your appliances is drawing. And the way that works is, is it's an amp meter and it has to be kind of wrapped around the wire. And that's fine for all the little circuits, but there's also these big ones for the main circuits to, to, to calculate it correctly. And in my house, the main circuits are 200 amps. And that's really dangerous. And I was supposed to take these little clamps and clamp them on these wires, and they're kind of hidden in the back. So I, I got on Amazon, and I bought uh, lineman's gloves. They're like really, really thick rubber gloves. And they were so thick, I could barely even do the thing. But they protected me from the electricity. And the electricity, it's good, right? I need the electricity to run my house, but it will also kill me. God's glory is like that. God's glory is good. But for a sinful human being infected with death, it will kill you. And so the sacrificial system is designed to protect the people from the goodness of God because they cannot approach him safely. What does this have to do with Jesus? Athanasius says, For we were the purpose of his embodiment. And for our salvation, he so loved human beings as to come to be and appear in a human body. God wants his people rescued from death. And so he initiates a plan to save them. New Testament scholar Matthew Thiessen talks about the Levitical law as God playing defense against death, setting up boundaries around death. The incarnation, the the fact that Jesus became a human being is God playing offense against death. God's power and presence lived in the tabernacle, lived in the temple, separated by the sacrificial law from death, protecting his people from his power. But in the Gospels, we see Jesus, 100% human being and 100% eternal 
God, but the presence, the glory is covered by a sinless human body, a body that is not infected by death. Colossians 2.9 says, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. In John 17, Jesus prays, Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. So Jesus is this human being God. The God-man is kind of the, the hybrid that we use. The glory of God hidden. How does this God-man interact with the world. Jesus goes around healing lepers. Remember all that skin disease talk in Leviticus? He cures a woman with a discharge of blood. Remember the, that, that weird chapter about discharges? He raises people from the dead. See, all the other things that he does as well, casting out demons, healing other diseases, creating abundance from scarcity, is example after example after example of Jesus going on the offense against the forces of death in the world. Jesus is able in his humanity to push back against the forces of death through his miraculous healings and the other stories in the Gospels. But ultimately, because humanity is united with death through sin, the only way to destroy death is to destroy humanity. One of my favorite um, science fiction franchises is Star Trek. Many of you know this. One of the classic villains in Star Trek is the Borg. They're this parasitic uh, civilization that, that attacks people and inserts little robotic bugs inside their bloodstream. And those bugs multiply and turn the host into a new Borg drone. And in some of the best Star Trek episodes with the Borg, one of the most heart-wrenching realities is, is this takes time. And the, the crew sees their crewmen, their crewmates, their friends who have been assimilated by the Borg, still wearing their uniforms, still looking like themselves, even recognizing their friends and saying, help me. But the only way to help them is to put them out of their misery because the Borg have taken them over. They're doomed. For us, infected by sin and death, there is no escaping death. Athanasius says again, the weakness, rather than the goodness of God, is made known by neglect. If after creating, he abandoned his own work to be corrupted, rather than if he had not created the human being in the beginning. He says, for God to just let his creation die would prove that he isn't quite as good as we think he is. It would have been better if he hadn't created anything in the first place. It goes against his character, his goodness to just destroy us and start over. This is where we get back to Independence Day. In order to defeat the aliens, they had to destroy the source of their power. They had to go up to the mothership and destroy it. In order to actually defeat death, Jesus has to get to the source of the invasion. He has to be united with death itself. Jesus has to die. 
Jesus unites with death to destroy it. Again, back in Hebrews, same verses, 14 and 15. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shares in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. See, God has no direct access to death. God is life. God is immortal. God is infinite. God cannot die. The incarnation gives Jesus the tools he needs to access death. Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith needed that little alien fighter. They couldn't just get up to death to destroy it. They needed that tool. They needed to be wrapped in the likeness of the alien world in order to get in to destroy it. And this is the incarnation. This is the eternal God wrapping himself in a body that looks like death, sneaking behind enemy lines to defeat it. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul says, We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers of this age, Paul is talking about, are dark spiritual powers in league with the devil who are ultimately responsible for killing Jesus. And Paul is saying they had no idea that by killing the Son of God, they would seal their own fate. If they knew that was the plan, they never would have done it. So how does Jesus destroy death? He he undoes it. He unravels it. Here's Athanasius again. And thus, taking from ours that which is like a human nature, delivering it over to death on behalf of all, he offered it to the Father, doing this in his love for human beings so that with all dying in him, the law concerning corruption in human beings might be undone. Athanasius makes a point about the circumstances of Jesus' death and how they're different from ours. So question for everybody, what caused death in the first place? Anybody? What? Sin, yeah, sin caused death. Adam and Eve decided that they couldn't trust God, that God's plan for them was not good enough, that his way wasn't the best way. And then they decided to go out on their own and do something contrary to his will. And this is the bad decision that unleashes the power of death into the world and causes thousands of years of destruction and chaos. This is why death clings to all of us. Because ultimately, we all decide God's way isn't the best way. We all become rebels and idol worshipers and turn our back on God's gracious goodness and decide to do our own thing. But did Jesus die because he was a sinner? No. Shane Wood, in his amazing book on death between two trees, writes this. In Gethsemane, Christ chose death through obedience, not disobedience, not deception. Christ's union with death was birthed through fidelity and divine clarity, 
not through rebellion, but through faithfulness, not through sin, but through holiness, righteousness, purity. Christ was not deceived like Adam. In fact, it's precisely because Jesus saw through death's charade that he accepted death's embrace, that he cried out, not my will, but yours be done. For when Christ looked at death, what he saw was us. What he saw was fallen, broken humanity. He didn't choose to unite with death. He chose to unite with us. For us, when the word became flesh, God became accessible to death, even death on a cross. And this line is so good. But much to death's chagrin, the opposite is also true. Death is now accessible to God. See, through the incarnation, God now has direct access to unfiltered, pure, the mothership of death itself. And his overwhelmingly holy, glorious goodness and power destroys it. I think this is illustrated in one of the weirdest passages in the New Testament. In Matthew 27, verses 50 through 53, we read, But Jesus, on the cross, cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. He died. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. And we talk about that a lot because uh, it's an example of the fact that the barrier between humanity and God has been broken. The curtain has been torn in two and we have access to God again. But then Matthew writes this, the tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and they came out of their tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city and appeared to many. That's weird, right? And we, we tend to focus on the curtain being torn because that's just a glorious metaphor about access to God. But what does it mean that the tombs were opened? And I, what I imagine, and I'm, you know, this, this is just me, but I imagine that Jesus dies and immediately death is disfigured, terminally wounded, and it kind of glitches out and loses grip of some people. And they just kind of pop back up. Jesus, the second person of the eternal God, cannot be held by death. So, why is there still death? Right? That's a pretty good question. If Jesus came to defeat death, like, pretty sure death is still going on, right? By the time we get out of church this morning, almost 100,000 people will have died today, about two a second worldwide. It's pretty sobering. Independence Day, they complete their mission, the virus spreads, the shields come down. but the humans still have to fight the aliens, don't they? They still, they have access to destroy the ships, but they still have to do the work. They still have to go to the battle. In that movie, the aliens don't cease to exist, but they lose their power. And this is the death that we see today. Back to Hebrews Chapter 2, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. See, in Christ, 
we are no longer enslaved to death. We have no need to fear death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, afterwards it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and authority and all power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be abolished is death. See, death, because of the incarnation, because of the death of Christ, is a defeated foe, but it's still out there causing trouble. For the Christian, if if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, we don't just benefit from the death of Christ, we also benefit from the resurrection of Christ, right? Because death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't conquer God. What happens is death is repurposed for a small time before it's finally destroyed. Paul in Romans 6 says, For if we have been, if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Because we are united with Christ, death is no longer separation from God, but a means to union with God. Athanasius, at the end of this section of his book, says, For now we no longer die as those condemned, but as those who will arise do we await the common resurrection of all which God, who wrought and granted this in his own time, will reveal. Someday, hopefully soon, we will experience the resurrection of the people of God. His kingdom fully revealed on a new earth and life like we've never experienced in his presence forever. At the end of the book, Revelation 20, we read, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death has been transformed for us through Christ. We follow Jesus, we, we take up our cross, we die to ourselves daily, and ultimately we await our day, a day when our own physical death, the remnant of a defeated enemy, doesn't separate us from God, but brings us fully into his presence forever. And that's the hope that we have in Christ. Do some Q&R. Not going to answer that first question. It's funny, though. If God's solution to sin and death was Jesus, why did he wait so long? Hmm. Were all the people before Jesus just doomed? That's a good question. The New Testament says that that Jesus came at the fullness of time, at just the right moment. And and we don't know exactly what that means. Um, Christians have speculated that just the the infrastructure of the Roman Empire was perfect for the the conditions that Christianity would would thrive in at the time. Um, We don't know why the timing worked out the way it did. Um, But we can trust that it was part of God's plan. But that doesn't equate to the, the idea that everyone before Jesus was doomed because 
when we read in the scriptures about those that place their faith in God in the Old Testament, we see that they are held by God. Uh, there's a, a, f- a few places where we get glimpses of this. There's a story in, in Luke's gospel about uh, two men who die, and one of them goes to a place called Abraham's bosom, where he just kind of has a good time waiting for rescue. And so God isn't um, limited by the fact that Jesus came in, uh, you know, the, the 4 BC or whatever we've decided the year of his birth was, um, and that everybody after that gets the benefits of Christ. The benefits of Christ apply to everyone who lived beforehand, because what applies the benefits of this amazing good news to us is faith in God. And people all the way back into the distant past have had the opportunity to place their faith and their trust in God. You guys, you guys are great. This is true. Bill Pullman did give the greatest speech given by any American president. You're right. (laughs) I'm glad that we are having a good time this morning because this is I was, this is so exciting, and I, and I hope, I'm, I'm not a very exciting person, so I, forgive me if I don't communicate that very well, but life with Jesus should be way better than any Marvel movie. It should be way better than any Star Trek episode, and yet we get so fixated on other things that seem more interesting. Yeah, I guess I'm a Christian too but you've been rescued in the most epic way possible by the God of the universe who loves you and died for you and rose from the dead because death couldn't hold him. And you are an heir to his kingdom. Hebrews says we are brothers and sisters of Jesus and and we get to inherit the future that God has for all of creation. I, I hope that's thrilling to you. I hope that excites you. We're going we're gonna to take communion. One of the reasons um, that communion is a meal is because of this reality. When we eat something, we become united to it. Adam and Eve were united with death by eating some fruit. And we are united with life by eating Christ. The bread and the cup represent Jesus' union with death on our behalf, his body and his blood. When we take his broken body and his shed blood into ourselves, demonstrating our union with him through his death. And that's the invitation this morning to reconnect with Jesus through these elements, to be reminded of his death on our behalf. The fact that he needed to become a human being to accomplish the work of salvation for us. And this meal is, is a powerful expression of our trust in Christ. And Paul says some of the Christians in Corinth uh, were taking communion, but they were mistreating others in their community. And when they took communion, they got sick, and some of them died. And that's a warning to us. 
that there's power in this table, that God's presence is still radioactive. He is still holy, but he is good, and he wants you. He wants to be with you. He wants you to experience his presence. And so I would just invite you to spend some time examining your heart this morning. I know we've all come from different places this week with different, um, different hurts and cares and sins that we struggle with. Ask the Lord to reveal to you what, what needs the attention of your heart. Get, get that figured out. And then come to the communion table. Take the bread and the cup. And just remember the death of Christ on our behalf. The band's come up. We're going to sing. You're welcome to sit or stand. You can use the prayer rugs to kneel if, if you prefer to do that as well. Let's worship together. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.